This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. The Trans-Pacific Partnership is the long-talked-about grouping of 12 countries that border the Pacific Ocean that could partner together on trade. They represent, according to estimates, about 40% of the world's output. But they include countries of different size. It has been considered very important that if this trade deal were to move forward, then the United States needed to be a part of it. President Trump made sure that wasn't the case by signing an order to get the U.S. out of TPP, uh, earlier this week. So what does this mean for the U.S. and for those countries? We are joined here in studio by Penn Law Professor Jacques Delisle. He's director of the Center for East Asian Studies here at the University of Pennsylvania. And also joining us on the phone, Richard Dasher, who is the director of the U.S. Asia Technology Management Center at Stanford University. Jacques, great to see you again. Thanks Good for coming be, in. Good Thank to be you. back. Thanks. Thank you, Richard. Great to have you back on the show. Happy New Year. Good morning, Dan. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, so, President Trump, his philosophy is, Jacques, that he does not want these multi-country trade deals. What do you think is really behind that process? Well, I mean, I think it's a it's a general critique of the kind of uh, trade agreements the U.S. has entered into. I mean, he attacked TPP. He wants to renegotiate NAFTA, those sorts of things. Um, you know, if you're going to take those off the table, then if you want to get momentum going again, it's got to be bilateral. Uh, and in a way, it's uh, it's a bit like what we've seen with China negotiating with some of its weaker neighbors. I think the idea is the U.S. is a you know, big player mm-hmm. uh, and has certain advantages in bilateral negotiations with smaller partners than a multilateral uh, trade agreement would pursue. But I think you know that's probably somewhat epiphenomenal to a to a more general attack on what he sees as trade deals that are disadvantageous to American workers. And you know, you'll get a, uh, I think, a quite a broad consensus among most of us who look at trade deals that uh, the liberalizing trade is generally an economic plus. Mm-hmm. But of course, it does have distributional effects and there are individual groups and individual sectors that are hurt. And I think that's that's what Trump is playing to. But it's a bit of playing with fire, as I'm sure we'll get into later in our talk here. Richard? Yes, I agree completely with Jacques. Uh, I would, however, go on and say that the TPP was a really innovative kind of trade deal that wasn't just about the number of oranges and cherries and and beefsteaks. <laughs> it really had to do a lot with a new kind of digital economy areas. Right where the pace of business growth is so fast, new industries are appearing so fast, that you couldn't do a item-by-item kind of negotiation, much less a country-by-country negotiation. And so these bilateral deals that uh, President Trump has promised are really going to be very difficult for American business. It won't be able to keep up with world competition. I think, Richard, we're, we're also seeing a little bit of understanding that because President Trump has never been in this situation before, uh, that he is making a, a kind of a statement at the outset. But it makes you wonder if whether or not he won't totally go back on what he says, but he will rethink it down the road. So with some of those elements, and obviously some of the environmental uh, angles that are involved in TPP as well, do you believe that we could potentially see something down the road that, that may change his philosophy? Oh, I think there's always that possibility. 
I think that the trade deal was probably dead no matter who got elected. One of the few things that yeah. Clinton and Sanders and Trump all agreed on was that they didn't like TPP. Right. So uh, I think that uh, what really matters is what happens next. I, and I guess to a degree, uh, Jacques, with what we're seeing right now and with some of the announcements that, that some of these companies are making about jobs being here in the U.S., even though they may have already been in play, when you have those kind of stories coming out, it just does, unfortunately for TPP, it kind of plays right into the idea of uh, of not going forward with something like this, even though there could be some very important advantages to it. And that's right. I think I just reaffirm uh, the comment that TPP was in trouble. I mean, the real strange trajectory of TPP was uh, the thinking had been that once Fast Track Authority, the Trade Promotion Authority, uh, had been put in place essentially to allow TPP, then we'd see TPP be adopted and it'd go through. And of course, you know, it, it, it faced opposition in Congress, faced rejection by both candidates. So I think free trade agreements, which are always tough, are, are just facing an increasingly bad environment. I mean, you did have yeah. both major presidential party candidates against it. You had the support for it to unravel in Congress. And now, as you say, you've got this political atmosphere created where really, you know, protectionism is not the dirty word that it was uh, right. a little while ago. Uh, and and again, you know, we're, we're in an era when, uh, when we see that kind of political backlash at the very moment when the complexity of agreements that really matter for economic globalization, the investment side, the services sector side, the high tech side, the, the internet side, when those things are ever more complicated to negotiate. So it really is is a dire uh, situation for those kinds of agreements and particularly for U.S. participation in those agreements, mm -hmm. which has been vital. Is it a good trade deal in, in your mind in general uh, when you look at TPP, Jacques? Well, I mean, I think it is in the sense that it, it, uh, it really did uh, take a significant step forward in liberalization of traditional trade, but more importantly, as we've been talking about, gets into services, gets into things that have emerged in the new economy, the internet economy. Uh, since then, and it did attempt to level the playing field in a way uh, by creating stronger labor and human rights protections. And yeah. one, that was a competitive disadvantage for yeah. firms based in the U.S. which had to adhere to those things. Now, there was lots to criticize about it. Uh, I mean, it, it really, as all trade liberalization agreements do, it, it does tend to have a, an impact on lower wage, lower skilled workers in economies yeah. like the U.S. And I think one of the political errors of the Democrats was not to take that into account. And of the Republicans, too. And that's what created both the Trump and the Sanders phenomena. And I think there are real criticisms to be made about uh, taking the U.S.'s extraordinarily high level of protection for intellectual property and trying to globalize that. It's not uncontroversial. You could make yeah. an argument either way, but it's at least something of an issue. Uh, and I think there was a process problem. Uh, it was a twofold process problem. Domestically, it was incredibly opaque. That's the nature, unfortunately, of negotiating these, these deals because everybody has to get around the table and figure out which of their preferences they're going to sacrifice. Yeah. But it, created, it made it an easy political target. This is being done by global elites behind closed doors and all of that. And the second one was that Obama, for domestic political reasons, had to sell it as essentially a competition with China for who was going to write the rules. Exactly. That yeah. played well at home, played well with Congress, played disastrously with China. And now, of course, with the U.S. withdrawing, China can step into that vacuum and say, let's go with our agreement, which is now the only one on the table, the RCEP, the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership. Well, and, and Richard, how much of, uh, especially the, uh, the angle of kind of keeping China under control, how much of that do you believe was the gist of, of trying to put TPP together in the first place? Well, I was on a task force studying the effect of TPP on the digital economy, and uh, a great deal. You could almost see the specific language that was directed at China. One of the clauses in TPP is that a national government may not require a foreign company to register or to provide its source code 
to the right. national government or to a state-owned enterprise. And when you see language that is that specifically the exact opposite of what China has been doing, uh, you, you can tell that it really was aimed at creating a large enough economic group that they could really kind of stand up to the power that China's exercising worldwide now. And I would think workers' rights obviously plays in a little bit to a degree in this as well. Yes, uh, the worker rights are a very important part of this. I think that what was really interesting is that they were trying to create a process for having a stable kind of business environment across these 12 countries, not just specific items and not just specific uh, requirements that uh, countries would follow, but really processes that they would follow in solving problems in the future. 844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to join in in the conversation. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. We're talking about uh, President Trump signing the uh, the order to uh, pull out of TPP. Uh, that obviously is, as both our guests saying, kind of playing a little bit uh, on the positive end here in the United States. Obviously, not so much uh, overseas. The other interesting thing about this, Jacques, when for people that are listening to us and haven't really followed this closely... Uh, I think a lot of people believed at the outset that this was the United States and a lot of countries in Asia. It really, there was obviously an element in Asia, but in this as well, you had Canada, Mexico, Chile, Australia. I mean, there were a lot of entities outside uh, of the of North America that that really were going to take part in this. Yeah, I mean, it was twelve countries, uh, and yeah, the the biggest two economies by far were the U.S. and then Japan. Uh, but it it really was a it was a trans-Pacific uh, partnership. It included, as you say, some North Americans and South American countries. Australia, New Zealand, we tend to think of now as being kind of peripherally Asian in some sense. Uh, but it really it really was a a, a wide ranging, uh, multi-country agreement. Um, now. You know, it was also supposed to be open architecture. So the idea was that other countries, other economies could come in over the relatively near term. So, so when it looked like prospects were relatively better for the TPP, there was a discussion going on essentially about the second tranche. So Taiwan wanted to get in. Uh, the anti-China, uh, anyone but China tone of the initial formulation of the TPP was pretty quickly dropped by the U.S. And so there, and China dropped some of its opposition and said that uh, it would uh, potentially be interested in joining in a later round. So this was potentially a very expansive arrangement. Um, and you know this is where the future of economic globalization, economic liberalization clearly lay, was in these mega-regional, trans-regional agreements. The WTO, after the Doha round, had kind of become moribund as a way of pushing forward liberalization as opposed to simply uh, resolving disputes. Um, bilateral agreements have all the shortcomings Richard was talking about. So the idea was to build these mega-regionals. And so it was, the, it was the RCEP, the TPP, potentially others. And there still is over the horizon this idea of it, FTAAP, the Free Trade Area of the Asia-Pacific. <laughs> Pacific. Uh, you know, we could do alphabet soup all day I, really? on this. <laughs> really? but, but now but now China is trying to position the RCEP, its rival to the TPP, <sighs> as the basis for the FTAAP, M-O-U-S-E, and things right, like that. Exactly. So, I, I mean, holy cow. Right, right. But the idea here really is, I think, despite all the, the verbiage, all the acronyms, the idea was to create, as Richard has, I think, quite uh, nicely uh, portrayed it, an attempt to get something which covers much but not all of the world and can be built beyond that, but that equally importantly gets into things beyond traditional trade. Yeah. So you're expanding conceptually, even as you contract, at least as an initial step from global agreements, but then try to build to include 
the major economies and the other regional economies in those major countries' regions. But Richard, from one of the things that I, I was reading the other day about this, though, it, it, if TPP was put together, I guess there could have been upwards of, what, 15, 16,000 you know, tariffs that, that were going to be linked uh, in this type of a deal, which I think for a lot of people that don't normally understand it would, would hear that number and would say that's a ton uh, of different types of tariffs. Well, being, an, being an expert, is that a lot? It is huge. You know, on the day that TPP would have come into effect, the tariff on American wine, which in California means a lot to us, right? The tariff on, Cal- on American wine in Japan would go from something like 30 or 40 percent to zero. And you have really tens of thousands of items, agricultural items, Plus, now that we're getting into the services, you have um, a lot of electronic commerce that is now going to apply. You have a lot of, um, you know, insurance and banking that could potentially open up. It would have been a huge agreement. Um, Now, it would have been very difficult to implement because of that. This one thing about this new approach is it goes beyond the sort of traditional trade community and really involves a lot of different departments and ministries of governments that typically have not had to be involved in trade negotiation. That means that on the implementation side, on the one hand, uh, you would have had to get all of these people to kind of align in each one of these countries. But if you did that, you would have a relatively stable platform on top of which countries could build businesses that could globalize easier. Which, obviously, as we're going forward, is going to be an important piece to have uh, for a lot of countries, uh, in not only their own business within their country, but also dealing with uh, cross-border trade deals. Yes, uh, that's correct. And if you don't play a part in building the platform, you may be able to take advantage of it a little bit, but other people will set the rules. 844-942-7866. If you'd like to join in our conversation with uh, Jacques Delisle of Penn Law and also Richard Dasher of Stanford University, we're talking about uh, President uh, Donald Trump pulling out of TPP. Your comments at 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. Richard, you talked about it, uh, I think, a little bit uh, earlier, but it Bears, I think, discussing a little further now, the the issues that are potentially there in terms of putting trade deals together, bilateral trade deals together with a lot of different countries. How difficult is that right now, especially, as you said, with, with tech really changing almost on, a, on an hourly basis these days? Well, there's the kind of basic inefficiency of doing the same thing multiple times. But the real issue is that business is not bilateral anymore. You know, you've got a company that has their data center in Vietnam, and they're running an e-commerce site somewhere up in Korea, and people are buying French things uh, to deliver into the United States using credit cards that are guaranteed by a bank in Chicago. So uh, you have so much multilateral um, activities going on, the supply chains in Asia, have, if you open up something like an iPhone, you'll find half a dozen different countries were involved in putting together the pieces of that phone. 
844-942-7866 is the number. If you'd like to join in uh, and give us a question, or if you can't get to the phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. So what's, what is the path, then, that the United States has to take right now in your mind, Jacques? Well, I think the path the United States should take in its own interest is to resurrect a lot of this. I mean, one of the things that gets lost in this discussion of the job impact, which is real and, and which needs to be dealt with, is that much of what was in the TPP was in America's larger economic interest. Uh, I mean, some of these things about leveling the playing field and environment and labor standards was in American interest. And this uh, notion of liberalizing the trade and services was hugely in the U.S. interest, given the comparative advantage the U.S. has in financial services and insurance, variety of other services. Uh, and in particular, as Richard also mentioned, uh, Japan was the big prize to some degree in this on the trade side, lowering the significant tariffs that Japan still has. A lot of the other countries in TPP we had very low to zero tariffs with uh, through other agreements um, on, on the export side. So, you know, what is the U.S. going to do? I mean, I, I think Trump is pursuing an agenda that isn't terribly interested in, in moving very far forward in this. And what the U.S. really needs to do, I think, at this point is essentially damage control. Uh, that is, we're going to face a situation where our major trading partners are now trying to figure out what to do. So there was yeah. already overlapping membership between the RCEP and the TPP. And so many of those countries are now fully on the Chinese-led RCEP. There's some effort among some of the TPP members to try to salvage uh, an agreement absent the U.S., um, and that's in their interest to do that. They'd have to rewrite it because by the terms of the TPP, you needed six of the original 12, representing 85% yeah. of the total GDP, which you yeah. just can't do without the U.S. Uh, so they'd have to at least rewrite those rules. So I think you know the, the, the U.S. agenda under Trump is likely to be one which uh, ultimately will focus on, on controlling the adverse effects of having pulled out. Now, yeah. what that looks like, it's going to be a piecemeal approach. I think the near-term agenda is going to be one that continues to focus on the supposed job games, gains of pressuring companies to come home or to invest here. And there will be some of that, but at a pretty high cost. Well, how, how important is it for a country like Chile to be in a, in a, in a deal like this? Well, I mean, the, you know, what, what the reaction through through many of the partner states has been is, okay, the U.S. is a big enough economy that it can do okay behind protectionist barriers. It'll be costly, but it's got a huge domestic market, and you know there's a limit to how much it's really, really going to pull back. But a lot of these countries are much more trade-dependent. I mean, their growth is much more trade-driven. It's much larger as a chunk of their GDP. They're right. involved in these uh, global supply chains as well. So it, it's a real blow to them because it, it can really affect things. I saw a statistic earlier today that you know, Peru uh, has increased its trade with the United States by something like 50% since we entered into agreement with them. So this is this is a big deal to them if these gains are not reaped uh, from the TPP and if we see renegotiation of some of the existing free trade areas. So in that sense, you know, the U.S. does have some leverage, and I expect this is Trump's game, in that although everybody suffers, uh, the U.S. can take those hits uh, given the size and diversity of its economy in a way that some of its partners can't, so it may be able to extract some concessions. Uh, and at a tactical level, okay, fine, that makes some sense, but there are strategic concerns here in that the U.S. has essentially abdicated its leadership role yeah. uh, in liberalizing and integrating the global economy. What, what, I agree go ahead, Richard, yeah. with Jacques. Uh, those are all really valid points. If there's one thing I could add, it would be that I think from now we really have to pay more attention to educating people about the real nature of global trade and how it impacts an economy. A lot of the uh, basis for uh, the action against the TPP was uh, this claim that it's going to increase jobs in the United States and make the economy better in the United States. 
those are pretty easy to see. It's easy to see a job flow out of the country. It's yeah. not easy to see the benefits of lower prices, lower inflation rates, a more stable platform for companies to do business, how that impacts everybody. And I think that there's a real responsibility on the part of the press as well as the government to do a better job of informing people just what the implications of these agreements are. 844-WHARTON is the number to give us a call. Your comments are welcome there. Or if you can't get to your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. I guess uh, let's take a second and talk about the environmental elements that were involved in here, especially considering the fact that there was such a back and forth when the Paris Accord was coming together about the impact that China could have on this. Uh, with the other countries that were going to be involved in this, I, I would think probably many of them were probably on board with some of the environmental elements to begin with. Uh, to a degree, does that, I don't know if it does, but does it put any pressure on China to, to, kind of, to continue to follow down this path right now, especially with uh, President Xi speaking at, uh, at Davos the other day? Well, I mean, I think, I think you've heard a couple of things from uh, China. I mean, China's, I think, got a deeply ambivalent response to the advent of Trump, uh, even if we limit our discussion to the economic side of things. On the one hand, China really does uh, gain from this, right? It now becomes the central player in supporting economic globalization and remains committed to the RCEP and wants to build on all of that. Um, and you know, on the other hand, China doesn't really want to fully take the leadership role in a lot of these things. It's costly uh, to be the underwriter of a relatively open economic system. You've got a, your, 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 your moves are scrutinized. There are certain costs to underwriting uh, the institutions and, and the rules of, of the game. And I don't think China fully wants to play that. And they're, of course, worried about the bilateral uh, trade relationship and whether Trump will undertake some of the specific moves toward China on whether it be currency manipulation and related tariff increases or whatever. Um, but on the environment side, I mean, you know, since China wasn't in the TPP, it wasn't directly going to be affected by that. I think there was hope that down the line, uh, China was signaling that it wanted to join the TPP. And of course, to do that, it would have to meet all of the requirements, including those related to the environment. Uh, but China's really been engaging the environmental issues on the parallel track of the Paris Accords. Uh, and remains, in principle, uh, committed to those despite the U.S. Uh, bailing out. And, and, you know, I think that's that plus the domestic concerns about yeah. the environment, which has become hugely uh, politically charged in China, are exerting much more pressure than the notional um, idea that China sometime would join the TPP and be subject to its rules ever did. Richard? That sums it up very well. I think that China, for its own domestic interests, is trying very hard to improve its environmental situation. Great to have you both on the show. Thank you, uh, Richard, for joining us. Greatly appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks, Dan. Thank you, Jacques. Great to talk to you again. It's always a pleasure. Thanks. Thank you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.